Spring deals at Ross will have you saying, it's a yes for me. Say yes to trending looks like tube tops, dad shorts, and mini skirts for less than online, or vintage tees and beach shorts for a weekend getaway. With all the styles to choose from, there's a yes around every corner. Because saving money and looking good is what you do. It's a yes for you and your bank account. Hit up Ross for your certified yes for me moment. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. And so this is the gift of reading that we can restore to our families, even with like 10 or 15 minutes a day, put phones away. They need to be, by the way, out of the room. Just like, you know, if you're on a diet, you don't leave the potato chips on the counter. You put them in the cupboard with the door closed, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. (laughs) You've got to keep that phone away and then read together and just sit and allow for reading to be something that we sink into. It takes about 10 to 15 minutes before your mind stops the chatter of, I wonder if somebody liked my post yet. You're listening to She with Jordan Lee Dooley, a personal development podcast for the everyday woman. Come invited, leave ignited. Here's your host, Jordan Lee Dooley. Hey, Julie, welcome to She. So glad to be here, Jordan. Thanks. Yes, so happy to have you. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I think this is a really interesting one and different from what we've talked about on the show before, but I think it's really good. So before we dig into all of the different questions I have for you, I would love if you can start off by sharing a little bit of your background and what led you to write your book, Raising Critical Thinkers. Yeah, I would love to. So My work is in the education space, especially with homeschoolers. Hmm. Back when I was raising my kids in the 1990s, I was a home educating mom of five, Hmm. but I was also a freelance writer and author. And during those years, the internet emerged Mm -hmm. out of nowhere, right? Mm -hmm. Out of nothing. (laughs) And I always joke that when the internet threw their doors open, the first people through were homeschoolers. We were Mm -hmm. isolated. There were very few of us. We were all looking for support and advice from people who were in the trenches. Hmm. So we happily hopped online and we gathered around these couple of discussion boards that were almost like watering holes and started asking each other questions like paper or cloth diapers? Do you Mm -hmm. use OxyClean? And we even verged into things like politics and theology. We were a very homogeneous group of people, you know, stay-at-home moms, probably mostly the same race, mostly Mm -hmm. the same religion, mostly similar politics. But what stunned me was how many arguments we got into. Like, instantly, people would be so harsh with each other about paper versus cloth diapers. Or cesarean section versus home birth. You know, really the early days of this public mommy wars kind of experience. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, you know, if I ran into these women at a park day, this never happened. Why did we go from park day civility to Mm. internet incivility? Like in a minute. And we're talking all the way back, right? We're talking all the way back to 1995, 96, 97. And so part of what animated me back in that day was how do we form our thoughts and why do we think we're right? Why do we assume that when we come into the conversation, our job is to persuade, not to listen or be curious? And of course, some of that happened too. I mean, much of my most meaningful growth as an adult happened because of what were almost internet bloodbaths, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Like digging deep, trying to justify your position and understand how you think Mm -hmm. better. And then you're exposed to other thoughts. So that was the beginning of my curiosity around thinking. And really it's been 25 years. It includes grad school, writing some books, working in Mm -hmm. my company where we teach writing to students and really trying to understand How do people form their thoughts and why are they so attached to them? So interesting. I love how you created that, not created, but shared that differentiation between if we were all at the park, this wouldn't really happen. And then all of a sudden the internet came on and we had this like 
different challenge that we hadn't really faced in this to the same probably degree of intensity. I'm sure people still disagreed or had their opinions. But like you said, the internet bloodbath that kind of ensued and then this uh, almost, uh, I guess, expectation that our job is to persuade and to be right when in reality, there's so much more to it. So that's really fascinating to me. And thank you for sharing that because that really gives a lot of context to this conversation. And I think context to your background, which is super helpful leading into this conversation, which I think leads me to the first question, which would be, what does it mean to be a critical thinker? I think we hear this like phrase and it's almost like a buzzword in some ways, like we hear it a lot, but like, what does that actually mean? I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So one of the funniest things I've discovered as I've been doing sort of the book tour is that when I talk, especially to men, not to throw men under the bus, Mm -hmm. but honestly, still, um, (laughs) they all think they're great critical thinkers Mm -hmm. in a similar way to how everyone thinks they're a good driver. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you're to ask someone, are you a good thinker? There's rarely a person who's going to say to you, oh, no, I'm not a good thinker. Yeah, no, I don't use my brain. (laughs) Yeah, I don't don't have quality thoughts. I'm Mm -hmm. not logical, right? Mm -hmm. No one is going to say that. So in a similar way to feeling like you're a good driver, right? You're inside the car. You're able to make the judgment calls and the decisions. That's what makes you feel good at driving. Similarly, we think and we know the journey our thoughts are taking and we know all the subjective pieces of our experience that support that journey. And so therefore we feel confident and convinced by the thoughts we have. Critical thinking the way I define it is not the ability to take all those thoughts you've assembled and use them to criticize somebody else's thoughts. Like that guy over there, he's out to lunch or that lady over there, she doesn't know what she's saying. It's the ability to reflect on your own thinking, to flip the camera lens around and do what I call an academic selfie. Like, well, what are the factors, the biases, and the perspectives in my own thinking that led me to this conclusion? And how is that different than the collection of experiences, readings, uh, encounters that this other person has Mm -hmm. that are animating their thinking? So Mm -hmm. it starts more with just taking the pulse of how you became who you are and then also being able to use that skill for another person. Mm -hmm. It's not being judgmental, aka critical, Mm -hmm. it's actually, I like to call it essential thinking, foundational Mm -hmm. thinking, being Mm -hmm. able to understand better. Yeah. Wow. So well said. I think that's such a good, even just the drawing the comparison with being a driver, because we only are looking at it through the lens of our own understanding. So of course, we think we're good at it. And then when you can kind of zoom out and apply this other way of thinking to, well, everyone else also has their own, (laughs) their own viewpoint on their driving and or their thinking. It does provide a bigger view of this idea of critical thinking. So I'm really, I really love that visual. That's very helpful. And you touched on this briefly, but I think this is a great place to kind of dig into this. How do we form our worldview? And like, how can our our personalities and our experiences shape our thinking and our perspective and the way that we view the things that we do? You touched on this, so I'd love to dig into it. Yeah. So I like to think about us as having two primary influences on how we think. The first one is just our individual perceptions. We come into the world, we know nothing, and we're immediately in a family. And the first thing that we consult as we're growing is our direct experience. That feels good. That doesn't feel good. That Mm -hmm. makes sense. That doesn't make sense. That tastes wonderful. That tastes yucky. Mm -hmm. So we are only influenced by our direct experience and how our body and minds process whatever that feedback or input is. The second way that we form beliefs is through our communities. Mm -hmm. And what our communities do is they help us interpret our perceptions. Mm -hmm. So a great example would be you're born, you come into a family, you're playing outside, your hands get dirty, it's time to eat dinner. Mm -hmm. What does the community tell a child to do? The community being the parents say, go wash your hands. Mm -hmm. The child who maybe hates the feeling of water on their hands is now being told to overturn or override a personal perception in favor of this new story that Mm. the family's telling about hygiene. So I, I call those logic stories. They almost always have a logical frame of reference 
and they help explain and help us understand the overwhelming experience of being human, where we have all these undifferentiated perceptions and ideas and feelings, and then someone comes along and helps us interpret them. So the community, whether it's your family, your religious identity, the news stations you watch on television, the radio shows you care about, you know, the sorority you joined in college, whatever Mm -hmm. it is, your community is going to give you a logic story. It's going Mm -hmm. to combine tradition, facts, ritual, habits, Mm -hmm. beliefs that are common that help support the identity of that community. And when you join that community, you sort of buy it like a cable package, right? Mm -hmm. You're like, here's the package of beliefs and experts I trust because I'm with these people. And that helps you filter your perceptions. So Mm -hmm. all of us are a mixture of personal perception and experience Mm -hmm. and our community identity and logic story. So fascinating and true. Like I just love how (laughs) simply you broke that down. It's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I love that. Okay. So then- I guess the follow-up question to that would be, I mean, you touched on bias a little bit, but how do we learn to differentiate bias or our, like yes. based on our experience from belief or facts from interpretation? Like, how do you know, is this bias or is this my belief versus is this facts? Like, I, I, right. I think, how do you differentiate those right. things? Yeah. So the thing to know about facts is they rarely come to us pure. Right. They're almost always living inside of a story and there's always somebody telling that story. Mm -hmm. So if you get a fact and you just hear the information, for instance, you know, the United States dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima in August of 1945. That's all information. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. It's it, it. We could call it a fact. But that's not usually how we receive a fact. There's somebody who's adding to the fact. They're saying it was a justified bombing or they're Mm -hmm. saying it was an unjustified bombing. Or they maybe are even a little bit more nuanced than that. The fact may look like it's coming to us without any kind of interpretation when it actually is. Mm -hmm. If we say something like United States bombed Hiroshima, we're putting the United States in a, a role of agency, that they made a decision to bomb. If we use the passive voice, Hiroshima was bombed by the U.S., it takes that agency away. It makes it almost sound as though it happened without anyone deciding to make it happen. So even constructions of language will shift how impactful Mm. a fact sounds. So what we want to understand about ourselves is that we're doing that all the time, right? So an example I like to give just to boil it down to a more practical experience is this one. Imagine it is time for dinner and you have a six-year-old and you ask your six-year-old, hey, go wash up. It's time for dinner. And out of the blue, your six-year-old says, I don't want to wash my hands. What does a parent typically do? Do they pause and say, what interesting new information? Mm -hmm. I'd love to know more about not washing (laughs) your hands. What has changed since yesterday? No, most parents go into what I call the parental propaganda program. They Mm -hmm. pull up the logic story they've learned sort of unconsciously from the culture, from their own parents, Mm -hmm. from parenting books they've read that says you must wash your hands before dinner. So what they do is they impose their authority and they try to get this child who's having an individual perception. They're Mm -hmm. trying to overwhelm it with authority. So they say, Mm -hmm. actually, you have to wash your hands. These invisible things you can't see called germs live on your fingers. When you touch your food and eat it, you're going to get sick. That gives your child no opportunity for critical thinking. And it also reveals a bias that you have not yet uh, detected in your own thinking. Hmm. So let me ask you this question. Do you believe that story? Do you believe that germs on your hands will cause you to get sick if you don't wash them before you eat dinner? Uh, me? Are you asking me? <laughs> yes, I'm asking you, the host of the show. <laughs> Honestly, I feel like before I would have answered yes, but I think now I kind of am like, I feel like that also kind of builds your immune system. So <laughs> I kind of have a mixed answer. Like on the surface, I want to say yes. But at the same time, the more I've been like digging into health stuff and whatnot, it's like, does it really? So I lean toward no, but my like gut reaction is like, yeah, obviously. <laughs> Well, so I love both of those. Oh my gosh, this is such a nuanced answer. I've asked this to a lot of hosts and I love that you are even in the middle Mm -hmm. of asking the question. Like that's powerful because what I love to tell parents is 
we say something like wash your hands before dinner, but didn't that child just eat three Cheerios off the floor like an <laughs> right. hour ago? Yeah. And, and didn't you just pick up your baby's pacifier, lick it mm-hmm. to clean it, and then put it in the baby's mm-hmm. mouth? Mm-hmm. Like how many parents have done that? Mm-hmm. So on one level, critical thinking is just recognizing that we have adopted a bunch of logic stories uncritically. We've accepted somebody mm-hmm. else's word for it, and then we're passing it on like a tradition or habit of thought without noticing that actually we're just illuminating a bias. So with this child, one way for both people to grow is to actually go down the rabbit trail every now and then. So when your child resists the logic story that you're giving them for whatever it is, watching video games, playing video games all night, Mm -hmm. not washing hands, wanting Mm -hmm. to stay up till midnight, this is a chance for you to be critical thinkers together. So imagine this story with the hand washing. What if we said, oh, oh, you don't want to wash your hands. What is it? Is it the water? Is it the temperature of the water? Let's, let's get a thermometer and let's measure the temperature until it's comfortable for you. Mm-hmm. And then we'll know what the actual temperature should be. Or is it that it's too wet? Mm-hmm. Is it the wetness? You know, we've got hand sanitizer that dries quickly. Would you prefer that? And let's say your kid just keeps resisting, like, no, that's yucky. No, I don't like that. Could you be creative? Look it up online. Like, what else kills germs? Oh, heat. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll just blow dry your hands. No washing for the next week. Or you could even say, hey, let's roll the dice. I'm going to test your theory. We're going to see if you get sick after a week of not washing your hands before you eat dinner. And if you don't get sick, you don't have to wash them anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, in other words, what if we allowed our kids to collect their own data, do their own research, experience the consequences. And of course, I realize under COVID, Mm -hmm. you know, if we're at the beginning of a pandemic where hand washing becomes, you know, paramount, well, then we've got to work harder to enroll that child, Mm -hmm. show them the, you know, diagrams of what the COVID germ looks like, help them understand that this is a moment in time where we're uncertain. So Mm -hmm. we're taking extra precautions Maybe we always play a song. Maybe we sing the happy birthday song. Maybe we eat a snack. Like do something to support compliance with something they have not yet vetted for themselves. So these are ways critical thinking can support your parenting even. Such an interesting thought because you're right. Like it's such a natural reaction to just to lean into authority. Like, nope, this is just the way it is. Well, why? Because I said so. Like whether it's a, in a parenting or just a caretaking role, like that's so often the natural way we do things. And to kind of even just have the willingness to say like, well, let's explore this together. Not only I think challenges our own way of thinking and helps us develop critical thinking skills, but like you said, it instills that in the the littles, like, you know, and it's like, wow. I mean, I hadn't even thought of that, but that's such a simple, even just some of the suggestions of what, what are the different ways you could go about helping them get on board with washing their hands or kind of exploring that concept together and better understanding why they don't want to do that. Like, and I love the the thought of what you said to like, well, let's explore this together. Let's test this for a week. If you don't get sick, you don't have to do it. You know, I think there is so much value in that. And it's really a, a very simple approach. You're not like building Rome in a day. You're just saying, okay, maybe I just approach this a little bit differently. And it develops not only your own critical thinking, but also your child's or the other person you're, you're dealing with. I think that's so fascinating. Well, the thing that I think you've identified well is that when we use our authority, we actually aren't persuading anyone. Typically, what happens is we're using what I would call conversion strategy. We actually believe the only way for two of us to cooperate is if one of us utterly gives up a position and adopts completely the other person's. And so this is why we have these choice phrases like agree to disagree. That has to be one of the worst things Mm -hmm. to ever do in a conversation. All it does is leave both people entrenched with a belief, a condescending belief, I will add, that the other person's stupid, Mm -hmm. that they are not willing to think. When really the goal of any conversation can be just getting it, understanding what the personal perceptions and community ideals are that drive the thinking of the other person. We cannot create solutions that work for a community if we don't account for everyone in that community. Mm -hmm. So like when we think of the internet, you know, I started this by talking about how shocked I was Mm -hmm. that these parents were so willing to argue with each other instead of listen to each other. Mm -hmm. It's because in the United States, 
We've been trained through our education system and our politics to believe that you win at the ballot box or you win with a grade, that there is one authority with one right answer and everyone is forced to agree. You know, if you're in a classroom of 30 kids and you take a test, there is one answer key. Mm -hmm. All 30 have to come to that similar conclusion. So we've been trained to assume that if I declare what I think is the fact and I back it up with an authority, everyone will fall in line. Mm -hmm. What we didn't anticipate with the internet is just how diverse all of those sources of authority actually are. We don't all agree that this person is an authority or an expert in Mm -hmm. this field. And so it creates a lot of conflict. Mm -hmm. What we could do instead is actually show some curiosity. One of the questions I love to ask, uh, I have family members who see politics very differently than me, my Mm -hmm. dad being one of them. And one of the questions I like to ask when I don't agree with someone is, how does the view you hold paint a beautiful picture of life? Because by starting there, you get their best messaging. You also see the things they value. Like what is the beautiful picture of life that they think this value or this belief is going to create? It also shows you sometimes who wasn't accounted for in that solution. So in that conversation, instead of saying, well, that's stupid, or I don't agree with that person, you're hearing the story, you're hearing their belief, you're seeing their insights, like how their personal construction of the world works. And then you can even ask, how does it account for fill in the blank, this other group of people? How does it account for me? How does it account for people with handicaps? How does it Mm -hmm. account for? And what that does is it gives you a place to have a conversation instead of an argument about who has better sources of authority. So good. I love that. That's so simple, but like healthy. I mean, really, it's like when you do find yourself kind of at a stalemate with somebody, it's so easy to just be like, well, I guess we're going to agree to disagree or whatever, versus that curiosity and asking intentional questions like that can get you so much further. And like you said, the goal really isn't to be right as much as we may desire that. And it's also not to, it's it's like really to just seek to understand and say, okay, we may not come to a point where we see it the same way, but I can better understand you and I can get it, you know, versus just saying you're wrong. So that's, yeah, that's so good. Okay. You've mentioned the internet a lot. So I want to kind of touch on this a little bit. I have a few questions related to just our consumption of information digitally and how much exposure we have to that. I mean, we live now in such a digital age and I think there's often a concern about how video games and social media and screen time affect us. And I think I have a two-part question here. One, how do these alter our brains and our ability to read closely and deeply and really understand? And also... I mean, we know that this influence, there's bias in media, there's bias in anything that we're consuming, right? So like, how do we sift through that well so we don't lose our critical thinking skills from all of the information that is thrown at us? Yeah, that's perfect. Such a good question. And I think we worry about it, especially with our children, Mm -hmm. because they have less experience and they're being raised with this sort of mass media assault on their senses at all times. They almost have no escape from it. I mean, I actually remember a life before the internet. Mm -hmm. I I bet you don't even barely, you know? So yeah, I mean, you're young. So for our children, they're at sort of that disadvantage where they don't remember beforehand. And according to research, uh, the internet, especially the way the internet lives on our cell phones, Uh, is reshaping our brains. I went into writing this book really not wanting that to be true. I'm a huge technological optimist. I believe that the problems technology creates, technology will solve. Like I've never been um, a Luddite in any way. But unfortunately, I had to square with the research that was actually sitting on my doorstep, which is that during this internet change where we've got notifications and dots and dings and pings and endless Mm -hmm. scrolling and like buttons, we have reprimed our brains for what is called hyperfocus. It is this vigilant way of being that we have in our earliest ancestors. You know, so imagine living in the pre-industrial era, you know, way back caveman times, and we are worried about the grunt of a warthog or the downward tick of temperature. We're on alert all the time for survival. 
Did you see? My new book, Embrace Your Almost, is officially out in the world, and I can't believe it's available to you anywhere books are sold. You can grab it from Amazon or Target or Barnes & Noble or Books A Million. There's some special editions out there, too. Target has an exclusive edition. Barnes & Noble and Books A Million both have signed editions. And you can also get it at local independent bookstores. Anywhere books are sold, you should be able to find it. So if you are walking through a season of unmet expectations or disappointment or broken dreams or waiting or uncertainty, this book will bless your life. If you are not in one of those seasons, but you're just not entirely sure what's next for you, this book will bless your life. And if you have a loved one or a friend or a sister who's walking through a season like that, who's dealing with unmet expectations or broken dreams or uncertainty or waiting, this book will be such a great gift for her or something to pass on to her. So if that sounds like something you need or something a loved one in your life needs, grab a copy. Grab a copy from Amazon. Grab a copy from Barnes & Noble, from Target, from anywhere books are sold. I cannot wait to hear what you think. And I cannot wait to not only get this message in your hands, but also for you to pass on this message and share it because I believe it's more than a message. It's a movement. So as you listen, as you go about your day, I would love for you to put it in order, grab a copy and start reading as soon as it arrives at your door. With two little kids, I do most of my shopping online now, but it can be so hard to shop for things like clothes online because I never know if I'm getting good quality until it arrives. The game changer, upgrading to high quality, affordable pieces from Quince. Now I have luxury essentials that transition from one occasion to the next, and I stayed on budget. Quince has so many options to choose from, like 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters for $50, organic cotton sweaters, washable silk tops, and timeless 14 karat gold jewelry. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. One of my favorite items from Quince is the silk pajamas I got. They are so high quality, luxury pajamas, but not at a luxury price tag. And I just feel like they don't even compare to some of the other pajamas that I have bought online or that I've bought um, just at various different stores. I'm like, these are incredible. <laughs> Indulge in affordable luxury by going to quince.com slash she for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash she to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash she. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University, that's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Thrive Market is a go-to for all your grocery and household essentials, and the convenience of getting everything online then quickly shipped to your doorstep is a huge time saver. Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories, and you can use their on-site filters to suit your lifestyle needs. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks, low-sugar alternatives, or gluten-free pantry essentials, you can curate your own shopping experience with just a few clicks. And when you shop Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need with their one-for-one one membership matching program. You join and they give. I use Thrive Market every single month. I get our dish detergent, dish soap, and various other just basic household essentials that are low-tox and non-tox ingredients. And it is the easiest way to get all of my favorite clean items sent right to my door at an affordable price, I should add. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash she for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash she. Thrivemarket.com slash she. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. 
Along came sort of the agricultural revolution where we could start living in communities. We didn't have to hunt and gather food. And so once the printing press started creating materials we could read for ourselves and we could read them in safe, quiet places like libraries, monasteries, Mm -hmm. and universities, our brains developed what they call deep attention focus states. And that became a capacity we had never experienced before. Mm. So we've had that for about 1500 years. What that means is we're able to sink deeply into what we're reading, not even render a verdict, just sort of allow for what we're learning to influence us, to have a space in our minds for consideration. What we've got today is a complete return to this old hypervigilant state. We are being called on to have an opinion immediately as though our lives depend on it. We're not allowed to read somebody's Facebook status update without rendering a verdict with Mm -hmm. a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Mm -hmm. Our phones are pushing our children out of deep reading. So one of the practices that I recommend in my book is to re-adopt a deep reading time. But here's the catch. You have to do it too. And most of us, most adults who even remember loving reading, find it challenging to sit with a book. I noticed uh, when I was doing this research that I treated nonfiction books like websites. Hmm. I'd like go to the index first. I'd read a middle chapter without starting (laughs) at the beginning. You know, Mm -hmm. I'd scroll through and look for a quote that hooked my fascination. Mm -hmm. And I reminded myself of how important it was to let an author make their case and allow it to unfold sequentially mm-hmm. over time without, without telling anyone, having private thoughts, not ones I amplify on a blog every week, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so this is the gift of reading that we can restore to our families, even with like 10 or 15 minutes a day, put phones away. They need to be, by the way, out of the room, just like You know, if you're on a diet, you don't leave the potato chips on the counter. You put them in the cupboard with the door closed, Mm -hmm, right? (laughs) mm -hmm. You've got to keep that phone away and then read together and just sit and allow for reading to be something that we sink into. It takes about 10 to 15 minutes Mm -hmm. before your mind stops the chatter of, I wonder if somebody liked my post yet. So fascinating. Yeah. I mean, just that deep dive or like background on the way our brains have kind of evolved and developed and the different, I mean, like you said, this whole idea that you're, you, you have to have a verdict, like the second you read something, even just whether yes. that's the like, like it or don't like it in a way, that's an expression of an opinion that you don't even really know if you formed half the time, but it just, I think, I mean, I'd be curious, do you think we react to things because they sound good, even if we don't know the full context or understand the, the source of authority or know if we even hundred percent agree, it just sounds right. So we say eh, that's good. I think we often like things that affirm our community identities and we dislike things that contradict them. And we really know what those are. So like I had five home births, right? Mm -hmm. So if I see somebody write anything that's about natural childbirth, I'm going to just be a thumbs up, you know, like Mm -hmm. I I, maybe even uncritically, Mm -hmm. like maybe somebody's even sharing an article and inside of it, it includes some caution. I might not even read the article because Mm -hmm. it just has a good headline that sounds like it's good about home birth. Mm -hmm. And I just automatically align with it almost like, being a fan of a sports team, Mm -hmm. right? Oh, it's the Bengals. I'm going to like it, you know? (laughs) And then we're afraid of being associated with something that is not in our group. One of the things I've noticed, you know, so for me, critical thinking is really built from Mm self-awareness. So one of the clues to me that I'm very plugged into my identity and not thinking Mm -hmm. is when I feel smug. So I'm on Facebook and I'm scrolling through and some person I haven't talked to in 30 years from high school posts some article written by a person I don't approve of, my group doesn't like. Mm -hmm. I will feel smug immediately like, I can't believe she's posting that. How does she not know how stupid that is? Mm -hmm. Wow, she's really not the person I thought she was 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like we do that. And so when I notice that feeling now, I I can't do it all the time because sometimes... You just don't have the brainwave capacity. But I try to pause and notice the feeling and then ask myself, I wonder how this view benefits her. I wonder how this informs the way she sees the world. I'm going to read this article through the lens of what I know about her life. Mm -hmm. Not to agree or disagree, but just to understand why this really made her excited to share. 
And that really opens the door, not only for just understanding. Sometimes, you know, people have accused me like, oh, you just want people to have empathy. Actually, Mm -hmm. sometimes the more you know, the more horrified you get, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're reading a white supremacist rant, you might gain more understanding, but that doesn't mean you gain more empathy. Mm -hmm. It might just be, wow, a human being like me who lives in my country, who was raised in our school system, holds this belief sincerely. What beliefs do I hold Mm -hmm. that I'm not reflecting on that are dangerous? How have I been deceived by my group? Which aspects of my way of thinking have I not reflected on like that? Mm, Fascinating. Yeah, it's true because immediately we just want to judge the other thought. And I think that's natural. Like you said, the feeling of feeling smug or whatever. And we don't even really take into account like, what do I need to be thinking about? We immediately want to just focus on how we're better, right? Whatever that might be. And we miss, I think, a huge opportunity. So that's, yeah, that's so fascinating. I love that you shared that. I would love to hear too how you think, because just speaking on maybe seeing someone's status update or social media or whatever, how do internet searches influence how we think? Like when Mm. we are trying to understand a a topic or an event that happened and we quickly do an internet search, how do you think that influences our critical thinking and our ability to think critically? Well, we already know that there are algorithms designed, right, to give us what we want to see or even give us what we don't want to see just to keep us scrolling, right? Mm -hmm. So Facebook, a lot of times, will actually show you things that you don't want to see because they know that you're more likely to engage from the negative than from the positive. Conversely, on Google, you are going to be shown whatever your habits are, what your patterns of Mm -hmm. search are. One way to improve the algorithm so that you see more is to deliberately search opposite of what you hope to find. One way to do that is to add the word controversy to any word that you're searching. So I had this happen just the other day. This mom was telling me that her son loves Pokemon. Mm -hmm. And so she decided to take some of my advice and practice with her son. And so her son did all these critical thinking questions that are in my book. He, mm-hmm. She asked him, you know, who do you think likes Pokemon? How do you imagine people who don't like Pokemon? What are they like? So he said these really cute things. He said, interesting people like Pokemon. He's seven years old. Mm-hmm. And then he said, boring people don't like Pokemon. So mm-hmm. clearly he's already in this thought world of in-group, out-group, right? And mm-hmm. he's thinking about Pokemon being universally lovely. So they went to the computer and they typed in, Pokemon controversy. And immediately what came up is there was a TV episode of Pokemon that had so many patterns and flashing lights. It caused seizures in a percentage of viewers who were children who had never had seizures before. And it became this huge, like a a sort of flag for the fact that television can have a negative impact on our neurological selves, Mm -hmm. not just our mental selves. And Mm -hmm. so they've had to ban that from YouTube and from television. And this little boy who had never had a negative thought about Pokemon had to grapple with the impact of something he loves that was negative on people like him. And it gave them a window of opportunity to expand, to include more information in how he thinks about the world other people, Pokemon, etc. So when we're online with our children in particular, it's good for them to start to recognize that there are people for whom the article is being written. Mm-hmm. There are people for whom the article is not being written. I love to always ask the question of my kids, who is this article for? Who isn't it for? Mm-hmm. Who does the author hope will read it? Who does the author hope won't read it? Who's being included in the solutions? Who's being excluded? These are ways to expand. And that's a good way to use online. Hmm. So interesting. Yeah, I think that's also really important because I think as a creator, something that I often think about is who's our target audience, right? And that's Mm -hmm. the case with media or with any other outlet or anybody who's writing an article or creating a story or whatever we often think about an intended audience because it's almost impossible to write something that will apply to everyone, right? Correct. Yet we often, like you said, it's it's really important to help us read with that lens and like view through that lens because otherwise we almost just like even just going into our searches and our reading and our research and all that with that understanding, 
broadens our ability to, I think, I don't know if the right word is like sift through all the information and know how to do that well, but also be able to think critically about what we are receiving or consuming. Does that, does that make sense? Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. And I think expanding to include viewpoints that you don't hold Mm -hmm. is always powerful. So going back to the hand-washing, you are in a process of considering health from a new lens. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming it's, you know, maybe prompted by COVID, maybe prompted by just your own curiosity about Mm -hmm. nutrition. My mother did that. When Mm -hmm. I was growing up, I had asthma and I was growing up in Southern California in the 1960s and 70s. And my mother started researching nutrition, supplements, She took us to chiropractors Mm -hmm. and through her own research started to change her beliefs around food. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up with a completely different understanding than all of my peers at the time. It was Mm -hmm. fairly early to be thinking about that. We'd go to the supermarket and she'd be like, all right, read all the ingredients. If you see BHA or BHT or EDTA, Mm -hmm. we're not buying it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We are in the supermarket, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of these ideas get prompted by personal experience, yeah. solving for a problem that your current community's solution is not providing, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. you're in a group and they don't have a solution or they don't have a belief structure that includes you. You start looking outside yeah. for more information. What we want to recognize is that even when you don't have that inclination to look There is other information out there. Mm -hmm. There are people with a different experience who are drawing different conclusions Mm -hmm. than you. And it's important to every now and then, you can't do it all the time. It's exhausting. Every now and then go down that rabbit hole. Just give yourself permission. I will say this. Let me add this because it's kind of important. There are some communities where thinking outside of how they think is really actually seen as dangerous and it is frowned upon. Sometimes even in a marriage, you will have a certain desire for more information about a topic. This happens a lot with religion and politics. And suddenly you feel unsafe to even look up the information online. If that's true, if there is like, I can't say to my friend that I'm considering this thought because I know she'll really look down on me. You are in what I would call an ideological space and not a critical thinking space. Ideological spaces say you must affirm the party doctrine or you're not welcome here. So if you want a healthy community that allows for critical thinking, you want to be in a community that embraces dissent. And I always hope that that starts at home, that when your child says, I should be allowed to play video games all night, you don't double down on shaming them for having that thought Mm -hmm. and trying to make them think that the way you think is the only way to think. It should be an opportunity for a conversation. Tell me more about that. Why would it be more fun to play at night in the middle of the night when you would normally be sleeping than in the middle of the day? Well, what would it be like to try that out? Uh, Do you need someone to make you snacks? Mm -hmm. Do you want me to stay up with you? Mm -hmm. (laughs) What if you get tired? Do you want me to put a sleeping bag out in case you do? Mm -hmm. Like if we explore it differently, we're creating room for our children to develop their own beliefs within the context of emotional support. Yeah. I love that. That's so interesting. I have a question that I wasn't planning to ask, but I think it applies just especially within conversation. And when you're in, you had mentioned like when you're in community groups where it just doesn't feel welcome to go outside of that space Yes. or I, I, it makes me want to apply this to even like adult conversation. Like you were mentioning earlier about like the internet and things like that, which I think the internet is a very unique space to navigate, but even just within our actual communities, where I think we tend to naturally gravitate toward those who are like-minded, right? It just is yep. like easy. But I'd be curious what your what your thoughts are on what if that's a conversation or that's something that you want to do in a conversation that feels, you know, there's a lot of like just very strong opinions I think that exist about ideas and culture and, you know, political things and religious things and things like that. And it's one thing to do that, I think, within the context of your home. But I'd be curious what your thoughts are on like, if you try to do that within a relationship who sees a maybe cultural or political issue very differently than you do, and that person resists it or is not interested in that conversation, I'd be curious what your recommendation is on how do you do that when you're trying to to navigate a conversation in a way that allows you to think critically or what, you know, help you seek better understanding with someone you like technically would consider yourself disagreeing with as you enter the conversation. What are your thoughts on that? Because I think we, I think what's hard about our culture and I think what a lot of people feel right now is it's so polarized that it's 
it can feel impossible to have those conversations at times with those who find themselves, quote unquote, on the other side of the fence on an issue or an idea. So I'd just be curious, like, how do you extend that olive branch, if you will, or how do you cultivate that conversation when it doesn't feel very welcome? Like, I understand when you're in a, in an, I, what did you call it? An illogical or ideological? It, it, ideological space. So when right, you're in a space like that, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. And I think, what do you do? Do you just try to find other community members? Do you keep pushing on that? I'd just be curious what your thoughts are on that. Cause I think that is a very real challenge. A lot of us run into. Yeah. So I think it's really important to have fan groups of the things you really love and value because you can let down your hair, you can relax, you can feel like, oh, good. I know I'm safe in this space. We all share a similar worldview. Mm -hmm. And then it's also important to find places where your point of view is not the number one point of view, Mm -hmm. where you get used to interacting with people who see the world differently than you do. Mm -hmm. And that's just good sort of cognitive hygiene or, you know, Mm -hmm. exercise. But when we're in these conversations, uh, there are a couple things you can do. One is set some sort of expectation of of the conversation. So let's say you're with a friend and let's just use nutrition because that feels a little more um, neutral to me than like a religious topic. Mm -hmm. So let's say, you know, somebody has the point of view that they just like to eat the way that they normally eat and they eat based on taste and flavor. They don't really consider the nutritional aspects of food. Mm -hmm. And you're over here on this like gluten-free vegan journey and Mm -hmm. it feels very inconvenient to have you over for lunch. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so this friend really wants to have this conversation with you or you want to, you're a new zealot for veganism and how it's changing your life. And this Mm -hmm. other person really doesn't want to hear it. Set the stage. Say something like, you know, I love you and I really want to talk about this. And before we do, are you open to the conversation? Can we talk about it? I want you to know this side of me, but I realize or I understand that it might not be comfortable. Mm -hmm. Like set the ground rules. I know with my dad, when we were recently talking about, well, he had just read my book and he really loved it. And I was surprised by that Mm because I was afraid that he would see it as some expression of a belief system he didn't hold. Mm -hmm. And so then all of a sudden he pivoted and started talking politics. And I said to him, dad, I would love to have this conversation, but let's do it without involving personalities because he was Mm -hmm. blasting certain politicians. Mm -hmm. I said, so let's set aside opinions about people And let's have a conversation about principles. Mm -hmm. So tell me one idea that you are worried about in the United States, something that's at stake or at risk right now that you're trying to protect. And then he brought up free speech. And the next thing you know, we're having a conversation. Mm -hmm. I was sharing areas where I think free speech is at risk. He was sharing his. They didn't completely overlap. Mm -hmm. Then we started talking about solutions and some of the solutions he offered sounded like they contradicted other beliefs he held. Mm -hmm. So I actually pointed that out. Mm -hmm. Then he pointed out some to me. It wasn't a perfect conversation. They never are, Mm -hmm. but there were never, we never attacked each other. And we were able to stay sort of in that arena where I'd say, well, how do you account for this? Mm -hmm. That's a great phrase, by the way, just Mm -hmm. write it down somewhere. How do you account for is so much better than what about or you're not including, Mm -hmm. or this is bad for other people. You're giving them the opportunity to inform you Mm -hmm. about whether or not they've considered this outlier. So that's one way. The second thing to note is that if you are in an ideological relationship, that relationship is built on agreement, not intimacy. Intimacy can only be had with people who are willing to know you as you actually are. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to share a personal example now because I think it's really important. I was uh, involved in a strong, you know, I I was in ministry. I was a strong Christian. And when my husband and I went through a divorce, I lost multiple friends. Mm. And recently I had a conversation with one of those friends who said to me at the time that because she believed in lifelong marriage, she did not know how to hold space for me making a different choice. Mm. And the safest way to engage with with me was to withdraw. And that happened for like five years. Ideology drives us to break relationship when there's disagreement, but intimacy drives us to know the person better. So if you want to be close to someone, we have to be big enough to include what is uncomfortable. Otherwise, we're only building on a a house on sand Mm -hmm. and the sand shifts based on people's beliefs and people's beliefs change. Mm -hmm. They are not static. Yeah. 
Wow. That's one. I'm sorry, because that's so hard. But you're right. Like that is something that when we don't know how to navigate that, because it's so it seems so opposite of our view or what we feel okay with or what we think is right. We, I think our natural inclination is like, well, I don't know what to do with that. So I'm just going to withdraw, you know, exactly. versus exactly. creating that opportunity, like you mentioned about how do you account for this? Or what are your thoughts on that? Asking those questions to say, let me give them the opportunity to explain where they're at to me or better understand, even if I don't hundred percent come to a point of agreement, That's right. at That's least right. I can seek to understand in that relationship isn't severed because I'm unwilling to have the conversation. So there you go. You yeah. got it. That's wow. it, Jordan. So good. So good. Okay. This has been so rich and so fascinating and I think really empowering because I think a lot of us have felt very at a loss of how do we think critically when we're being blasted endless information with endless biases and its own agendas and all the things that come at us on top of navigating just our own personal relationships? I mean, the amount of like, I think mental real estate that all the information we have to sift through <laughs> takes up is like so much, you it's know? Huge. And so I think that's why a lot of us just dis- disengage because we just are that's so right. mentally overloaded and we don't have the right tools or questions to be asking to to engage that in a, in a productive way, in a way that's not going to feel like it just totally exhausts us. So anyway, I really appreciate everything that you've shared from how this applies to parenting, to how it applies to personal interpersonal relationships, to how it applies to how we navigate social media and media and the internet and the age of information. It's been so valuable. I'm so thankful for the work that you do. Can you share just as we wrap up, I'd love to talk for like five more hours, but just to keep it short, (laughs) can you share where everyone else can learn more from you? Maybe dig into some of the resources you have for schooling and all of that, and also just where they can get your book and learn more. Awesome. Yeah. So if you want to connect with me personally, I'm active on Instagram and my account is at Julie Brave Writer. Our program that teaches writing and language arts and uses a lot of these critical thinking skills in our curriculum is called Brave Writer. And that company is bravewriter.com. So you can check that out. And then if you're interested in buying Raising Critical Thinkers, go to raisingcriticalthinkers.com. And uh, there is a free downloadable book club guide so that you can read this book in a community of friends Mm -hmm. and actually learn how to do these skills together. Um, All the places that you can purchase it are linked on that page. Love it. Love it so much. Julie, thank you for being here. Thank you for everything you've shared. It's been such a joy to chat with you. Thank you for having me, Jordan. I'd love to hear from you. It makes me so happy to see you tuning into this show. So if you're on Instagram, let me know what your favorite part of the show was by taking a screenshot of the episode you've tuned into and share it on your story. Tag me at Jordan Lee Dooley and tell me what your favorite quote or takeaway from today's show was so that I can see what's helping you and even feature what you share. This keeps me inspired and encouraged to keep creating new content. And it's a great way to share something that your friends might love too. I can't wait to see you in Instagram world, my friend. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about the She Podcast or to get involved in Jordan's growing community, visit jordanleedooley.com. Thanks for joining in today. Until next time, remain committed to intentional choices that refine your heart, faith, health, and work because your story is much too important to settle for anything less. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.